The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Stephen, thank you for sharing. It is so good to uh, hear an example of grace that comes to us through living a person who's experienced the legalism of a of a debilitating religiosity. I'd like us to just pause for prayer. Let's, let's pray together. And as we pray, would you just uh, pause in your mind and um, imagine yourself on your knees praying. In your mind, I want you to imagine yourself on your knees praying. And Jesus Christ himself is on his knees beside you. And he has got his arm on your shoulder. But behind you is another figure, dark and, and big, and it's, it's called the law. And he's got his arms crossed and he's looking down upon you with condemnation and judgment. And I want you to know that the only reason that that being is in the room with you and Jesus praying is because you have allowed that being to be there Jesus did not invite that law to come in to your prayer closet. He has no place in your prayer closet. Jesus, I ask you, Father, Holy Spirit, today I pray that you would help us. I feel as though, God, the the gospel is still a mystery to so many people. And I ask you to help us to understand. Draw back the curtain, lift the fog, and help people to be able to breathe the fresh air of grace that we find in your gospel, your good news today. Lord Jesus, make that possible, I pray. And open my mouth that I might speak in the power and the anointing of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Several years ago, Pat and I visited Atlanta, Georgia, and we went to a museum called the World of Coca-Cola. Maybe some of you have been there. And in the museum is a vault, and in that vault is the legendary secret formula of Coca-Cola. Supposedly protected over the past 130 years, it is uh, safe from all competitors that would try to steal it and and replicate it. And and 10 years after that Coca-Cola had started, Pepsi-Cola was born in the late 1800s, and, and uh, of course, they were perhaps seeking to steal that secret recipe. I actually have a little mini Coke, Coke Zero here, a little mini Coke Zero, and I will give it to the person following the service that recites to me Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, the theme verse of this sermon series in, in uh, Galatians, okay? Uh, Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, etc. And so if you can recite that to me, the first one will get this little bottle of Coke as a, as a memento of uh, the world of Coca-Cola. So now you're not going to be listening to me, you're going to be memorizing Scripture instead. So. <laughs> the inventor of Coca-Cola was a man by the name of Dr. John Stith Pemberton. He became a, a morphine addict after the Civil War. He had been injured and became a morphine addict, and, uh, and so he made, because he was a doctor, he made 
a drink, and he patented this drink called Coca-Cola, and it was a medicine for him because it relieved some of his pain and exhaustion. And so uh, he began that way, but then eventually he sold it to a, a man by the name of Asa Griggs Candler, who was a businessman and developed the drink into a commercial business, and of course, he developed it into this king of soft drinks that it is today through his marketing schemes. Now, what intrigues me about the history of Coca-Cola is the, the various slogans that they used to sell the product over the years. One of the first ones um, was, interestingly enough, it was, um, satisfaction comes in the genuine. Satisfaction comes in the genuine, it says. And uh, uh, another one, during just before the years of Prohibition, uh, this one was, uh, it said, the great national temperance beverage. So they were billing themselves that way. Uh, in the summer of 1922, they began to advertise that it's a, a drink for all seasons, summer and winter. Uh, in 1925, they re reached 6 million bottles a day that were being sold, and so they advertised that. It's the popularity of the drink. In 1927, purest sunlight came out. And it, looking back on our eyes today, we don't think that it's a, maybe a, as pure a drink as, we, as they did back then. But then in 1943, it's the taste that sets it apart. And in 1959, something happened where they began to identify Coca-Cola and, and replay the card of originality, authenticity, genuineness, and the word real or really starts to appear in their advertising. And so in 1959, be really refreshed is, is out. And in 1969, one that many of us remember, Coke, it's the real thing. And they had the song that went along with it, it's the real thing, what the world wants today, etc. And it's the real thing. And then even up until 2005, uh, it, make it real was, was made known. Make it real. And so obviously... This, this drink, um, which was um, actually made from the extract of coca, that's where the coca comes from, and then in, in the early 1900s when coca became an illegal substance in the United States, they started to claim that they decocainized the, the stuff and they had a New Jersey chemical company that uh, provided the stuff. But whether or not this is a guarded secret recipe that's held in a vault in Atlanta, Georgia or not, really doesn't matter to me. You can go on Google and Wikipedia and find the actual recipe of Pemberton. I don't know if it's the real one or not. But when we're talking about a soft drink, does it really matter if it's the best refreshment, if it's the, the original thing, if the recipe is the real thing, if everybody has it or nobody has it? It's not really that important. But when you are talking about a message that is absolutely life-altering, that will will either give you forgiveness of your sins from a holy God, or it won't give you forgiveness. Whether it'll actually change your eternal destiny, or it will change it in another way. That matters to me, and to all of us, I think. And in Galatians chapter 1, there are two matters that are on the Apostle Paul's mind as he begins his letter. The first thing is, what is the original recipe of the original gospel that was given to the apostles by Jesus Christ? What is the original authentic recipe? And then secondly, where does it come from? Where did it originate from? 
These are of utmost concern in Paul's mind, and, and uh, unlike Coca-Cola, he does not want anything to be shrouded in secrecy. He's not saying we're going to keep this secret because it's in, in a vault somewhere in Jerusalem. No, no. Paul and the apostles wanted this secret to be made known. The mystery of the gospel is now made known. How people can be right with God, that's now made known. And Paul was earnest that, that the guarding the good trust that was entrusted to the apostles not under lock and key, but guarding it meant making sure that it was free from all the poisonous impurities of the cheap imitations and the fake messages of the gospel that were already within just a decade or two of Christ's resurrection were already crowding into the early church and mixing the true gospel, the message of Jesus and the grace of God. God with impurities that were adulterating and distorting and perverting the message of Christ. And so Paul is, is shouting at the beginning of Galatians, this is the real thing, and this is where I got it, and this is why anything that competes with it has to be denounced. That's really what Paul is t t talking about in Galatians chapter 1. And if you have your Bibles, why don't we uh, turn to it now and let's look at what Paul says. Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 6. And if you're able to stand with me to hear God's word, I would encourage you to do that now. Galatians chapter 1, and Paul says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a contrary gospel to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the Jew churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing about it, that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Amen. Let's be seated. Before Paul met Christ, he was of the sect called the Pharisees. The Pharisees, literally the word means the separated out ones, the holy ones, the separate ones. 
He was of the order of the Pharisees, which is a group that began maybe 100 years before Jesus. And they began with the good intent of trying to preserve this fidelity to the law of Moses and the right ways of God that they understood them as. And over time, it became so much more legalistic as they began to shore up what was the right life that was righteous before God. In fact, they had so many laws Alone in the Old Testament, we find more than 600 laws, but they added to those laws, and they had many more rules and laws that surrounded the 600 laws. And so, in ritual purity, in formulistic, uh, formulaic ritual, they tried to be this pure group of people and became very self-righteous. Their intent was good, obviously, at the beginning to pursue what was right, but they became obsessed. They became obsessed with what was not to be done and judged anybody that lived outside of what they thought was the right path. They became extremist, legalistic, judgmental, self-righteous, moralistic, negative, and critical. A month ago, when we began in this building, our staff meeting, our first staff meeting that was held in the boardroom I had all of the staff open their Bibles to a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 23. And together we stood and we read the entire chapter together. And in that chapter we read some of the most scathing words of Jesus that he reserved for the Pharisees. He said things in that Scripture, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!' For you travel across the sea and land to make one single convert, and after you have, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. You can understand why Jesus was not a very popular man with the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe your mint and dill, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. And, and over and over again, what he identifies in them that Jesus Christ, the pure Son of God, hates is this focus on the external instead of the heart, this deceptive thinking that somehow we can live up to a standard of pleasing God in our own ability, this pride of self-righteousness, thinking that we have a corner on the truth, and this idea of placing heavy loads on people who are already burdened down with their sins coming out of the world, but then they come to religion and more heavy loads are put on them. Rules that go beyond even the Scriptures. The Pharisees saw their religion as a way of attaining righteousness without faith, a means of controlling people, and just as Jesus got angry, Paul begins this letter in Galatians angry. He's angry at this way of religious, seeking God's favor through religious hoops and duties, heavy yokes and burdens under the banner of religion. The gospel of Jesus is a, is a, is a free grace message, and it is freeing. It is freeing when you understand it. And those who follow in the steps of the have-to religion of the Pharisees 
and that have taken the cloak of Christianity upon it are in an OCD kind of religious practice and faith. Obsessive Christianity disorder. And uh, one of the reasons why I, I am very excited about this series in Galatians is because I believe that there's little strains of this disorder in, in us. And even as I am studying Galatians, I am finding in my own experience legalism that does not belong there. I, I want to give you fair warning. We are just in chapter 1. And he's just introducing very much an autobiographical sketch of where he's come from, Paul the Apostle. But I am telling you that as we get it further into Galatians, I think some of what he teaches might just rock the world of religion that you have come into in your Christian experience. And I, I, I'm asking that the Holy Spirit will, will take us by the hand and usher us in to see where the place of the law has what the place of the law has in the Christian's life. The fact is, the law has no place in your life. Literally, no place. You have died to the law. There's no place for the law in the Christian's life. There's no condemnation in the Christian's life. We have been set free and this is, is, this is a message that rocks our world because even though we wouldn't call it quite that, we still have our principles and our rules and our have-tos and our musts and our shoulds. And if you understand relationship with Jesus Christ, all that stuff goes by the wayside by the grace of God. If I were to tell you about my father, Opa Jank. Imagine that you were in my living room one day. And I, and I got out the, the photo albums and I began to show you my dad. And I was showing you the, the, the lodge that we built in Kenora. How we worked together side by side and how we would go fishing or hunting. And I was going through page after page and telling the story, and all of a sudden, miraculously, my dad walked through the door in the flesh. And I looked up, and you looked up, and we saw him, and I said, oh, that's my dad. And then I went back to my table, and I kept on turning the pages and describing the pictures of my dad. What would you think of me? You think something's wrong with you. You got the real thing here. You don't know how long you got him for, but you got the real thing here. What are you doing? See, that's what we do when we open up the law. We got Jesus. Jesus has come. He's alive. He walks with you. He talks with you. You know, he is in you by the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. The new covenant relationship, you will not want to trade places with any Old Testament figure. I don't care if it's David or Moses or Abraham or Elijah. I don't care who it is. I would not want to trade places with any Old Testament figure. 
We have a relationship with Jesus that is unlike anything pre-New Testament anybody enjoyed. But we let this law come into our prayer closet. We let this law playground in our minds. We let this law condemn our hearts. That's not grace. That's not what Christ preached. And this is what made Paul so angry. Because it was Christ plus. Obsessive Christianity disorder. Take a look at verse 6 when Paul uses the word astonished. A very soft word compared to the mood of the, the first chapter. Paul's angry at the false teaching. He's angry at the false teachers. And he's angry at the believers in Galatian churches that are opening up and putting up with this. And he says in verse 6 that, that he's perplexed that they're actually deserting him who called them in his grace and they're turning to a different gospel. Now, of the times that the gospel word is used in the New Testament, 76 times, Paul uses the word 60 of those 76 times. Paul loves the gospel, the good news of Christ. And Paul did not see it as the ABCs, like we often think, oh yeah, I, I learned the gospel back then and I, I came to Christ, but now the gospel, I don't need it because I'm, I'm now a Christian. And that's heresy. The fact is that every moment I breathe, I live the gospel. I need the gospel. The gospel is the message that I can't, but Jesus can, and in me, he does. And that's the message of the gospel. I need him every hour. And so Paul says that he's, he's disturbed because they had deserted. Notice it does not say they were deserting the message. Verse 6. He says, they are deserting him who called them by his grace. You see, this is not some kind of a, a change of allegiance. Uh, this is a personal change of, this is treason. This is deserting the one who gave his blood for their freedom. This is treason. This is betrayal. Not just a change in ideology. Look at the heavyweight words that we see in verses 6 to 9. First of all, verse 6, he says it's a different gospel. The word is heteros, where we get our word heterosexual. The gospel that was preached by the Galatian false teachers was as different from the original gospel that Paul preached as a man is different than a woman. Okay? That's, that's how different the gospel was. Paul says it's, it's a heteros gospel. It's a different gospel. Nothing to do with the gospel that I preached to you. Secondly, in verse 7, he says it's a distorted gospel. The word is metastrepho, which means a reversal, an opposite gospel. It's a, a different kind. In fact, when this word is used in the Greek New Testament, two other times I'll cite, Acts chapter 2, verse 20, it says, the sun shall be turned to darkness. Opposite, right? The reversal. Sun turned to darkness. Another time is James uh, chapter 4, verse 9. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and let your joy be turned to gloom. You see, that's the kind of word that's being used here. This gospel is a contrary gospel. It's a, it's a distorted gospel. It's an opposite gospel. The third word in verse 8, he says, 
It's, it's a dissenting gospel, uses the word that talks about a contrary to what was originally taught. It has nothing to do with the original piece. And then finally, in verse 9, he uses a word that is anathema, which means it's a damned gospel, but it's not really the gospel that's damned. It's anybody that preaches a gospel other than the one that we taught you. Let him be accursed. And the word accursed is damned. In other words, in the, in the vernacular, he says, may that person go to hell if they preach any message other than the one that you heard us preach by grace in Christ. Why such strong language? Because Paul is convinced that any other message other than the pure gospel is going to lead people astray and not find the grace that is in Christ that gives eternal life. So these are very strong words. Paul's, uh, Paul can be accused of being lots of things, but you cannot accuse Paul of being unclear. <laughs> you, you know, I love, it. I love it people where you know where you stand with them. Paul would be one of those guys. You don't have to ever guess. Yeah, I wonder what Paul's thinking. He's not like that. He knew what he thought. And so this false gospel that's found here is a, is a self-improvement religion. Jesus plus. The Pharisees attempted to please God without a redeemer. The Judaizers of the false teachers that were called here in Galatians are trying to improve upon themselves by, yeah, they say they accept Christ, but but it's all this other stuff too. Very similar to how Stephen shared of his background in, in formerly to, to being found in grace. He understood. He would use the word grace, he said. He understood grace, but it was grace plus other stuff that he had to do. And this distorted gospel of mixing law and grace. Do you know what happens when you mix law and grace? You always back, end up with law. I mean, it doesn't matter if you have 50,000 gallons of pure water. You just put one drop of poison in, and it's, it's not something you want to drink. And that's what Paul is teaching. I want to tell you about a study that was done back in 2009, 10 years ago, in various campuses in, in the United States at universities and high schools, um, among mostly teenagers. And the study was done to try and understand what does... What do the American teenagers, and I put Canada in there in similar fashion with the globalization that we experience, and, and basically trying to figure out the religious and spirituality views of, of teenagers. This is 10 years ago, so now these people are young adults. And they discovered that some, there's, there's a real common belief. There, there was enough of a thing, there's enough of agreement among American teens on religious beliefs, that they actually called the belief system a, a something that was called moralistic, therapeutic deism. If I unpack that, moralistic, in other words, for all of the, despite all the efforts to stamp out the right and wrongness that we have in our minds, teens still have conscience and still have this sense of moralism and right and wrong. Moralistic, Therapeutic, the idea that really they've been brainwashed into thinking that it's really all about them, me first kind of thought. And then thirdly, deism, this idea that, that mo most American teens believe in a God. And, and it's a God that's made in their image. And so 
Let me just tell you um, the study that was done by Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton published their findings in a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, the largest and most comprehensive study of its kind in history. They came up with six points that I'm going to share with you. First of all, moralistic therapeutic deism says that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So there's a God. Some would argue with the created part, you know, that he created, but, but there's a God. Secondly, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair, as taught by the Bible, and they would lump all world religions teach the same thing kind of in that area. Thirdly, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. So there's this subjective therapeutic well-being stuff going on. That's in the minds of most popular religious teenagers in, in North America. Fourthly, self-improvement is the one great moral imperative in this group. Find your own meaning in life. Be who you were made to be this way. But it's really about you. Self-improvement, the one great moral imperative. Fifthly, God does not need to be involved in one's life. That's what deism teaches, that God's up there and he's kind of looking down and saying, how's it going? Oh, you don't really need me. You're going fine. Um, and deism is that distant separateness of God. God does not need to be involved in one's life except when he's needed to solve a problem. So if you're in a, in a pinch, then you call upon God. But otherwise, I can run my life fine without you. And then the final thing was that good people to go to heaven when they die. And they're not sure about bad people. Okay. You'll notice the primary language of this whole study and the results of it is is really outside of the Bible. Sin, repentance, salvation, forgiveness, redemption, all these things are replaced with things like happiness, niceness, being good, fulfillment. Human problems are pathologies in need of treatment. Sin is not in vocabulary. The big idea of moralistic therapeutic deism is that somehow we, we earn favor, we justify ourselves, we have to be good. God is keeping a, a mark on this. And human problems are are really pathologies that can be improved on, issues that need to be dealt with. The, the thing that's scary is that this thinking has crept into the minds of many, many people that sit in churches every week. It's about self-actualization, not righteousness, not grace. Matt Chandler comments on this study, and he says it posits a God who does not so much interfere and redeem or rescue, but basically hangs out behind the scenes, cheering you on in your you-ness and hoping that you pick up the clues he's left behind to be, to be the best you he can be. He, you can be. And so, I call it God on a leash. But you know, theology does not rise any higher than its view of sin and grace. You can take that to the bank. Theology does not rise any higher than its view of sin and its view of grace. The two extremities of any theology, any ideology, have to be determined by what is believed about sin, human condition, and what is believed about grace, God's intervention in the human condition. It's not Jesus but a little bit of other stuff. God fully rescues. So what is it that characterizes the true gospel being preached by Paul 
Let me just share with you uh, a few things. From verses 12 and following, Paul says, I did not receive it from any man. I was not taught it. I received it from revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying the original recipe of the message of the gospel that I preached, I got it directly from the author, the patenter, the one that made this up. This, this is the one I got it from, Jesus himself. You'll notice in verse 1, in verse 11 and 12, in verse 16, Paul is taking pains to say, I didn't get this from any human. Not even the apostles. He's really trying to clarify, I got the original recipe of the gospel right from Christ on the road to Damascus. And he even mentions it that he was for three years by himself with this message after he was given sight to see. He must have been back in the Old Testament, eh? He must have been back in the Scriptures reading and studying for three years. And then it says, for two weeks, 15 days, he goes up to Jerusalem and he, he meets Peter and he meets James, the, the Lord's brother. And that's all he meets. And then he goes away. And he's away for another 11 years. And it's not till 14 years after his conversion, chapter 2, verse 1 tells us this, that he goes back to Jerusalem and, and he confirms that this is the gospel I'm preaching. Do I have the approval of the rest of you apostles? And they said, yeah, that's the gospel we're preaching too. And we're preaching it to the Jews, and you keep on preaching it to the Gentiles, and you go out there and you start planting churches around, among Asia Minor because that's what this world needs is the, the real thing, right? That's what the world needs right now is the real thing. So Paul is very earnest about, about making sure that he's, he's on the real thing. Verse 15 he believed it in response to being called by the grace of God. He said, he said, God set me apart before my birth to do this. I'm wired this way. This is what God destined me for. Paul's really, really clear about this. He said, I didn't go and seek God and find him. I was persecuting the church. I was a violent man. And God just interrupted my life. And I don't know what your testimony is, but I can say to you that that's my testimony too. God just broke into my life in grade 11. He just, he found me. I didn't find him. And, and I, don't, I know this does not make sense, but the grace of God continues to hound me and follow me because I mess up. And, and the thing that does not make sense is that when I do something really good and, and don't mess up, I think I should get the credit, but I know I don't. I, I, I owe it to the Lord for helping me. And, and when I screw up, I expect to get the condemnation, but God takes it. Jesus is with me. You see, and it doesn't make sense because if I'm going to get the rap for the bad stuff, I'd like to get the glory for the good stuff in my life, but it doesn't work that way. I know intuitively, and if you know grace... You know, too, that grace is not the ABCs of your Christian life. Grace is the A to Z of your Christian life. You walk by grace. And I think uh, a man like Stephen, who came out of a legalistic religion, has a more of an appreciation to get his head above the clouds and breathe the clean air of grace. More than some of us, maybe, who grew up in the church and have little, little impurities of legalism mixed in with grace. 
They haven't really come out sometimes. That's why I hope that this study in Galatians challenges us in these areas. <clears throat> There's a book that I, I've just recently come in contact with and reading by a guy named John Burke. It's called No Perfect People Allowed. And I'm thinking about this for our church, folks, not just for me. No, pe- no perfect people allowed. And in this book, the whole book is, is saying to church leaders, what are the steps necessary for a church to create a culture of come-as-you-are culture in the church? Do you see how important that is for us as a church family to do that? To create a come-as-you-are culture in the church. What does that mean, even, to create a come-as-you-are culture in the church where legalism and religiosity fade away because grace is so important? And those of us who have been saved by grace just extend it. And if you're in the, in the line where they're receiving the Lord's Supper and someone takes the bread but doesn't take the cup, or, or they do something wrong in, in church or something, and you, don't, you don't look sideways at them. You extend grace. Right? How do you create in the church a come-as-you-are? Hey, if you're messed up, guess what? We all are. We all got baggage. How do you create a come-as-you-are culture in the church? I'm really earnest about reading this book. You see, we're not just saved and freed from something. We're freed for something. We're not just freed from our worldliness and sins and from the, from the religiosity of more burdensome rules put onto us by some church organization. No, we're, we're saved and freed for serving others. Making it clear that others can, can be invited into this same grace that we're part of. And so in the weeks to come, I'm looking forward. Looking forward to studying what is the Christian's relationship with the law. You know what? The law was only put in place to bring you to Christ, and after that, you don't need the law. It has no place. Isn't that great? Understanding the law's place in the world keeps us from antinomianism, this lawlessness. We're not suggesting that. But as soon as you came to Christ, guess what? The lawgiver and the law fulfiller came into your heart and says, I'm going to guide you from now on. I'm with you to the very end of the age. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and let me just pray for us as they join us up here. Lord, I'm so grateful for your grace. And Lord, I still, I still want to stand on tiptoes to get my nose into the clean air of grace above the dirty, soiled air of legalism and religiosity and Jewism and, uh, Father, so many other isms. So would you help me and help us as we study together? We really want to represent you well in this church and to this world. So help us, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.